Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Welcome, everyone. It's an honor to be here uh, to be able to speak to the BYU community in today's devotional. I hope and pray that what I say today might be accompanied by the Spirit so you can be edified and uplifted. By way of background, uh, to add to what President Worthen has said, I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was 15 in May of 1978. My brother and I were raised by our father, who was a secular Jew in Southern California. We used to gather for the high holidays with our aunts and uncles, and in many ways were deeply affected by our cultural background. Although indoctrination in the Christian religion was not a part of my upbringing, I had nevertheless read uh, much of both the Old and New Testaments in my own personal search for truth as a teenager and was gradually drawn toward the persona and teachings of Jesus Christ. I thought I would focus my talk today or begin my talk by introducing two experiences that have had an enduring impact on my life. These happened, both of them, when I was a recent convert to the church. The first experience happened just a week or so after my baptism. I was invited by a friend of my brother to attend a home worship service of an evangelical fellowship. After the meeting, the preacher invited us to stay and discuss our new religion. Although we shared a a common belief in the divine mission of Jesus Christ, his ensuing attack on the character of Joseph Smith was ruthless. And as a 15-year-old convert, I was unprepared to defend the Church. Along with my very personal witness from the Spirit regarding the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, I discovered that night that the foundational belief upon which we disagreed was the idea that we are not creatures, but actually spirit children of God, our Heavenly Father. As the Apostle Paul taught the ignorant Athenians on Areopagus, God hath made of one blood all nations of men who are the offspring of God. I think this doctrine resonated so deeply with me because I had been raised in a single-parent household by my father. I had a deep-seated emotional understanding of Dad's love for us and gradually came to understand and appreciate intellectually how much he had sacrificed to raise my brother and me as a single parent. Consequently, although Dad was far from perfect, it was naturally easy for me to embrace the concept of a loving Heavenly Father as the the great universal God. The second experience occurred some weeks or months afterwards. My father was an accomplished musician. He was a cellist in the Los Angeles Philharmonic. He could also play a half dozen other musical instruments and was a very talented painter. One day we were talking and my agnostic father posed a question that went something like this. The Jews claim to be God's chosen people. And when I look at their tremendous historical influence in the arts, philosophy, science, and business, disproportionately large relative to their small numbers, I have to acknowledge that is not an outrageous claim. If members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are also God's chosen people, How come I don't see similar accomplishments and influence from members of your church? 
I responded that the Jews had been around as a people for over 2,000 years, while the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was not even 150 years old. Remember, this was back in 1978. My father's assumption, a common expectation, is that God's true religion should have the power to transform its believers into people who are not only loving, compassionate, industrious, generous, in other words, good, but also people capable of extraordinary achievements in the arts, sciences, sports, business, and government, along with religion. For example, the Jewish people can count over 200 Nobel Prize winners, around 20% of the total number of laureates. I believe that President Spencer W. Kimball also believed this, as he issued a bold declaration and challenge in his landmark BYU 1976 Second Century Address. I quote, I am both hopeful and expectant that out of this university and the church's education system, there will arise brilliant stars in drama, literature, music, sculpture, painting, science, and in all the scholarly graces. He then challenged this university to be the refining host for many such individuals who will touch men and women the world over long after they have left this campus." End quote. Putting these two experiences together, I believe that our loving Heavenly Father afforded us additional grace through the covenants we have made. One potential purpose of those covenants is to empower us to become brilliant stars and refining agents should we elect to do so. The gospel should also engender in us a heightened awareness of and empathy for the suffering of our neighbor. I have noticed this in my own almost 43 years of discipleship as I have sought to know God through studying the scriptures, serving in church callings, and serving mankind in various ways through my work. I am a father of four sons and also now a grandfather of three adorable little boys. I naturally hope that they will emulate the kinds of life choices that have brought me great happiness. If God is also my father, shouldn't he logically have the same hope and expectation for all of his children? Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught us more about this and a key truth about how we can come to know God in his October 2003 general conference talk entitled The Grandeur of God. I quote again, of the many magnificent purposes served in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, one great aspect of that mission often goes uncelebrated. <clears throat> his followers did not understand it fully at the time and many in modern Christianity do not grasp it now. But the Savior himself spoke of it repeatedly and emphatically. It is the grand truth that in all that Jesus came to say and do, including and especially in his atoning suffering and sacrifice, he was showing us who and what God our Eternal Father is like. In word and in deed, Jesus was trying to reveal and make personal to us the true nature of his Father, our Father in heaven. He did this at least in part because then and now, all of us need to know God more fully in order to love him more deeply and obey him more completely." End quote. Incidentally, I did a word count 
and found that in 3 Nephi, Jesus referred to God by the title of Father 180 times and in the Gospel of John 113 times, far more frequently than any other use of the title of deity. Inciting the prophet Joseph Smith's lectures on faith and also the Savior's great intercessory prayer in John 17, Elder Holland went on to emphasize that having a correct knowledge of God's character and attributes is essential in order for us to be able to exercise the kind of faith that leads us to eternal life. Hence, in the great intercessory prayer in John 17, the Savior taught that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Elder Holland also highlighted two scriptural examples from Moses chapter 7 and Zenos' allegory of the olive trees in Jacob 5. Both of these accounts feature a despondent heavenly father weeping over his violent and corrupted children. How wonderful it is to think of God as our father, endowed with a glorified body and passions, among them the great emotion, love, and empathy and we are all his children. I love how Alma taught the people of Gideon in Alma chapter seven, that Jesus would purposely take upon himself the pains and the sicknesses and infirmities of humanity so that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people and become a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief for our sakes, to quote Isaiah. I wonder what these scriptures imply about a disciple's need to emulate the Savior and acquaint ourselves with the suffering of our fellow men. Intriguingly, the master of the vineyard in Zenos' allegory in Jacob 5.49 seems to test the empathy of the servant when he proposes, let us go to and hew down the trees of the vineyard and cast them into the fire that they shall not cumber the ground of my vineyard, for I have done all he follows with a question that he had asked the servant twice previously. What could I have done more for my vineyard? The servant then issues the appropriate plea, the only appropriate plea, spare it a little longer. The allegory of the olive trees is especially interesting to me since I'm a crop geneticist. My wonderful colleagues, students, and I study primarily two crops and their relationships with wild relatives. Those two crops are quinoa and oats. Although totally unrelated and originating in different hemispheres, these crops share with the olive tree two characteristics. First, they were domesticated from invasive weeds. And second, they have a problem intending to revert back to their ancestral weedy forms. It is interesting to me that the tame or domesticated olives that produce large edible fruit are frequently produced by grafting domesticated olive branches, the horticultural term is scions, onto the wild olive rootstocks, another horticultural term. The wild olive rootstocks diverse genetics provide the whole plant, cultivated scion included, with natural resistance to pests, diseases, and environmental stresses like drought and extreme heat. Because the wild rootstock is so well adapted and vigorous, if it is not carefully tended by regular pruning, shoots that emerge from the rootstock can grow to choke out the upper scion branches and the latter will eventually wither away and die. 
Similarly, if the upper scion is not carefully pruned, this portion of the tree can become too productive and heavy, exerting lethal strain on the rootstock. It isn't hard to see that olive trees, oats, and quinoa can serve as wonderful metaphors that represent people and the importance of human diversity. In plant breeding, we usually refer to tame plants as being domesticated or elite. And although we do frequently refer to wild plants, the preferred term is exotic when we are talking about germplasm or plant material that we intend to use in crop breeding. Of course, in this metaphor, the tame or elite germplasm represents the true believers who, following in the footsteps of their master, bring forth the good fruits of the gospel, which are kindness and compassion, engagement in missionary and temple work, uh, creating homes that are filled with love where families are taught by the Spirit, and many other good works that bless humanity in a myriad of ways. But couldn't the good fruit also represent artistic master masterpieces and groundbreaking scientific discoveries? In contrast, the wild or exotic germplasm represents lives that are devoted to careless self-indulgence, irresponsibility, violence, and disobedience to the, to the conscience that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Nonetheless, both the Lord of the vineyard and his servant see that there is value in the wild olive trees. They have the potential to become domesticated or tamed, and the refining value of experience, because after all, they are also children of God in this metaphor. Early on in my career, I received an excellent real-world lesson in the importance of genetic diversity in crop breeding, my chosen profession again. In fall semester of 1985, during my senior year at BYU, I was surprised one day to receive a, fo a phone call, a recruiting call, from Dr. Don Rasmussen, the Director of Graduate Studies of the Plant Breeding Program uh, at the University of Minnesota. He was an, a Utah State graduate, a native of Ephraim, Utah, and possibly the United States' most successful malting barley breeder. In the end, I decided to attend Minnesota, and the next fall found myself seated in Don Rasmussen's course on breeding self-pollinated crops. Dr. Rasmussen's primary breeding objectives were to produce exceptional quality malting barleys that were high yielding and had major genetic resistance to the, to the two most severe barley diseases at the time. In order to improve complex malting and yield traits, his program sacrificed genetic diversity. All of his best varieties, which are still considered the standard for malting quality, were closely related to each other in an effort to concentrate gene forms, which we call alleles, for these two traits. Consequently, he and his colleagues paid little attention to minor diseases that would occasionally appear and cause minor yield losses. In the spring of 1993, the year after I graduated Minnesota with my doctorate, the upper Midwest experienced its wettest spring in centuries. The high humidity and cool temperatures created perfect conditions for one of those otherwise minor barley diseases, fusarium head scab or head blight. The fusarium fungus not only reduces grain yield, but also produces a toxin, deoxynivalenol or DAWN, 
commonly called vomitoxin due to its effect on hogs that are fed infested grain. That was the first of a series of consecutive wet years that saw fusarium, uh, fusarium head scab rise to become the main disease of barley and wheat in the Great Spring cereal production region of the upper Red River Valley. USDA barley production statistics shown behind me uh, illustrate a dramatic decrease in barley production in this area that includes eastern North Dakota as well as parts of Minnesota and South Dakota and extending up into the Canadian province of Manitoba. Uh, while many growers in the drier western states of Montana, Idaho and Washington switched from feed to malting barley production, Almost 30 years later, wheat and barley breeders are still desperately searching for genetically diverse, exotic sources of resistance to this disease. And much of the United States' malting barley uh, production appears to have permanently relocated here to the Western United States. Our research group at BYU, which is co-directed by me, uh, Drs. Jeff Mon and David Jarvis, is part of an international effort to breed quinoa that is better adapted to grow throughout the world, including the lowland tropics. Farmers in Africa, South Asia, and lowland regions of Latin America would like to be able to grow and feed quinoa to their children because of its excellent protein and mineral content. This has been especially true since the quinoa boom began around the year 2005. Elite quinoa strains were bred by the ancient civilizations of the high Andes mountains to be productive in very cold, high elevation environments. The main production area is in the Andean valleys and plateaus over 12,000 feet above sea level, which is hundreds of feet higher than the top of Mount Timpanogos, which is looming over BYU campus. Uh, however, other cultivated quinoas are present along the narrow coastal strip of South Central Chile, and weedy types, which are commonly known as goosefoot due to the peculiar shape of the leaf, can be found throughout lowland regions of Chile, Argentina, and even here throughout the United States. Before we started working on the problem, the North American weedy goosefoot, uh, these strains were not recognized as valuable exotic germplasm for breeding lowland quinoa. Just two years into our quinoa research project in early November of 2003, I broke away for a day from a scientific conference being held in Den Denver to see what quinoa production looked like in the U United States, visiting the main growing region around Alamosa in southern Colorado. <laughs> Earlier that year, I had seen for the first time traditional quinoa production fields in the Bolivian Altiplano. There, highly diverse quinoa fields are partly infested with the local weedy goosefoot, and the two often cross-pollinate. The impoverished subsistence farmers who lack mechanization will walk through the fields and separately harvest the black-seeded weedy quinoa, which they often consume in popped form. The discouraged Colorado grower I met with that day in 2003 complained that every three years they had suffered near-total yield losses due to pressure from insect pests and excessive heat. From those two experiences, my colleagues and I started thinking that maybe the solution to failed quinoa production in the U.S. was to try crossing it with lowland-adapted strains of, of weedy and wild goosefoot. 
The next year, 2004, we started collecting these wild and weedy populations, mostly from Arizona and Utah. Since then, our collection has expanded to include samples from hundreds of goosefoot populations growing in environments as diverse as the Sonoran and Mojave deserts, the Gulf of Mexico coasts, shown here behind me in the coast of Mississippi, the Great Plains, California, and even as far east as the New England coast. We are now crossing these elite quinoas with their exotic, or elite quinoas with these exotic goosefoot strains and producing breeding populations that we share with quinoa breeders in a dozen countries on four continents. Here is a photo of a couple of advanced lines we produced from two quinoa by goosefoot cross combinations. Two years ago, while revisiting the Colorado quinoa region, this time not in November but during the growing season, we noticed that the quinoa production fields had native goosefoot plants growing around their margins. In addition, within the fields themselves were many plants showing intermediate characteristics uh, between quinoa and the weedy form, just like we were accustomed to seeing in the, in the Andean quinoa fields in Bolivia and Peru. The next year, we sampled 15 plants from this Colorado population, yielding varying degrees of goosefoot characteristics. And after DNA sequence analysis by uh, one of my students, Jake Taylor, and Drs. Mon and Jarvis, we confirmed the extensive introgression of goosefoot DNA, goosefoot genes, into this population. Interestingly, so many years after the Kinoa disaster of 2003, the problem was no longer failure to set seed. It was now a problem of heterogeneity or mixing due to the natural outcrossing process, which was converting Kinoa into a fully adapted crop through genetic mixing with its weedy but totally native and adaptive, adapted cousin. In other words, weedy goosefoot genes had literally saved the Colorado quinoa industry. Although Andean quinoa was bred for a very specific type of environment, within the DNA of quinoa cells is additional genetic diversity because it is a polyploid, a plant that anciently combined the chromosomes of two distinct 18 chromosome species into a single 36 chromosome plant. Because of this enhanced diversity, that 36-chromosome ancestor was more vigorous than its diploid or 18-chromosome relatives, and thus was able to invade and colonize a much wider range of habitats, hence its dispersion throughout lowland and highland environments of North and South America as weedy goosefoot. As humans later, much later, migrated into the Western Hemisphere, weedy goosefoot was already adapted to the disturbances humans made as they cleared land for hunting camps and eventually gardens and villages. People started consuming goosefoot leaves whose flavor is reminiscent of its cousin spinach. And eventually they began consuming the small but very nutritious black seeds. In time, early indigenous farmers picked out plants having larger non-black seeds and began to sow these. And so the domestication of quinoa began. Once in the Andes and in at least two other places here in ancient North America. While genetic diversity is so important for crop survival, what about in human beings? 
While the genetic answer to this is unquestionably a resounding yes, I believe that culturally the answer to this question is also a resounding yes. With Dr. Len Novilia of the Department of Public Health here at BYU, uh, I co-chair our college's diverse, diversity and inclusion committee. We have carefully reviewed, uh, or reviewed carefully executed organizational and leadership li literature from around the country. And the data, including from such reputable sources as the Harvard Business Review, indicate that businesses and other organizations having ethically, ethnically and gender diverse leadership structures consistently outperform more homogeneous ones. It was amazing to witness the parade of cultural and ethnic diversity purposely displayed in the Sunday morning general set conference session uh, just last month. Clearly, our church leadership recognizes the value of our varied cultural uh, and ethnic backgrounds and experiences, and that we will become even more successful as our leadership reflects the ever-diversifying landscape of international church membership. In returning to Dad's question about the accomplishments of the Jews relative to members of our church, is it possible that the difference among our two groups of believers can be traced at least in part to diversity? In looking at the history of the Jews, we see a religiously and ethnically cohesive group of people, initially, who migrated from or were driven out of their Near Eastern homeland into tumultuous and often perilous multicultural environments in places like Central and Eastern Europe, Iberia and Morocco, the Eastern Mediterranean, Southern Arabia, and Ethiopia. We call this the Jewish diaspora. Appropriately, this word comes from a botanical term, diaspore, referring to the seed and all of the associated plant tissue that is necessary for, successful, for its successful separation from off the mother plant. Within these diverse environments arose distinct Jewish Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Mizrahi, Temani, and Falasha cultures. Contrast that historical experience with the early Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. By revelation, we basically did the exact opposite. We fled persecution in the eastern U.S. for the relative seclusion of the western wilderness. Although the Church sent missionaries out to many parts of the world, for the first century we brought the converts back for assimilation here in Zion. Consequently, although the church gathered tens of thousands of converts, for example, from Scandinavia here to Utah, uh, and they comprise the Scandinavians, 16% of Utah's population in the 1900 census. The descendants of Swedes and Norwegians that we lived with for six years in Minnesota seem to have a stronger affinity for their multicultural roots than their cousins did here in Utah. This is in spite of our very strong dedication to temple and family history work in the church. I sometimes wonder if one result of the physical gathering to Zion is that we sometimes conflate our prevailing intermountain Western culture in which we live here in Utah and Southeastern Idaho with an official church culture, expecting that our converts from multicultural and international backgrounds will adopt the cultural patterns here as evidence of their complete conversion. 
In last October's General Conference, Elder William K. Jackson of the 70s spoke of a universal culture of Christ. He noted, quote, the culture of Christ comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is eternal and explains the why, what, and where of our existence. It is inclusive, not exclusive. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is hardly a Western society or an American cultural phenomenon. It is an international church, as it was always meant to be. New members from around the world bring richness, diversity, and excitement into our ever-growing family. For BYU to fulfill the prophetic hope, expectation, and challenge, the gauntlet thrown down 45 years ago from this very pulpit by President Kimball, and fully become a refining host of brilliant stars, I believe we need to welcome and nurture the expanding diversity of our multicultural American and international brothers and sisters in all of their ethnicities, cultures, languages, and life experiences. The very same Savior who beckoned to us to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent, in almost the same breath prayed to our Father that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Moreover, I believe that our Father in heaven expects us to develop this unity and cultivate our diverse talents and abilities so that we can be counted among the few servants in the allegory of the olive trees charged with pruning and edifying his vineyard. He has spared the vineyard as well as all of us for this sacred purpose. I am deeply grateful for the two young missionaries, Elders Levitt and Jenkins, who knocked on my door so many years ago and testify that the gospel of Jesus Christ they taught me is true. I believe Jesus Christ is our atoning savior who perfectly exemplified the qualities of his and our loving heavenly father. In the, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.